We got a few announcements for you today, just our regular stuff that's going on during the week. Wednesday night Bible study, 6.30, Pastor David teaching through the book of Matthew. Uh, come on out. We got child care. It's an awesome time to get a midweek study. Um, we've got uh, Easter coming up soon. We're only a couple weeks out, really. I think it's April 9th, right? And then 7th is a Good Friday, so we got a Good Friday service that's going to happen April 7th at 6.30 right here. And then we'll have uh, Easter service. Easter service, we'll have an 8 o'clock service and a 9.30 service. Okay? Okay, church? What time's the Easter service? See, they always tell me nobody listens to the announcements. You guys listen. All right. Well, if you're here today visiting, we want to welcome you to the church. It's, it's a blessing to have you. Um, we've got food afterwards, so stay and break bread with us. Our theme for this month is the theme of love, and that uh, we're to love God with everything we got, love our neighbor as ourselves. But, you know, sometimes some people are hard to love, aren't they? And so God calls us to be the one that reaches out, to be the one that goes out of our way to love others, to forgive others, to be that example of Jesus Christ who loved us when we were yet still in our sins and loved us as he died on the cross for us when we were still in our sins and rose from the dead so that we could have everlasting life because of his love for us even when we didn't love him. So it's so important for us to reach out to as many people as possible in love to share the love of God. Amen? So as we've been going through Timothy, uh, last week we looked in chapter 5 and what we saw was uh, how we as leaders in the church should treat the congregation. And so he told Timothy to treat the older men like your father and to treat the younger men like brothers in the Lord. And to treat older women as if they were our mothers, and for younger women as if they are our sisters with all purity, and that we are supposed to have this family-type love. And then he encouraged us about widows. How do we treat widows? He said, this is how you treat widows who are widows indeed. What does that mean? Widows indeed. Are we supposed to make sure their husband's dead? Are we supposed to bring them up and applaud them for being widows? Honor them? No, what he was saying was that the, the ones that the church are supposed to take care of are the ones that are truly widows indeed in the sense they have no family to take care of them. They have no children. They have no grandchildren. They, they don't have a spouse. They don't have any relatives that can take care of them. And that they are also to be women that are of prayer and supplication. They are women that are serving in the church. They are they're kind to strangers. They visit the sick. Uh, they're, they're working in ministry. And they love praying for people. And he says, these are the ones that you're supposed to take care of as a church body. And that means take care of, taking care of them financially. And then he warned us of those who uh, are widows who will go back to the world and seek pleasure and fall into sin. He warned us about the younger widows that uh, he said, don't take anyone under 60 because the younger widows are they might make a vow to God that they're going to stay single. And boy, I'm just going to serve God all my life. But the younger widows, you know, especially when they're in their 20s or 30s and they're going to they're going to long for love again. They're going to love long for affection. And and there's a danger of them falling into sin and sexual immorality or or they're going to find someone in the church and do it right and get married. But they're going to feel like they're under condemnation because they're 
breaking their vow of being single that they made to God for the rest of their life in order to serve him all the days of their life. And so he just says for those women, the younger ones, don't let them make that kind of vow because they probably won't keep it. Tell them to get married. Tell them to have kids. Tell them to, you know, just do all the things, you know, serve God and keep going. And so he gives us just this good good sound teaching on how to treat widows and how to treat each other in the church now today he's gonna he's gonna teach you guys how to treat the leadership of the church how you treat your pastor how you treat your elders and i really didn't want to teach this at all because it's like i always feel uncomfortable when it comes to stuff like that okay and then next week we'll be looking into chapter six how do we treat unbelievers so chapter five is how do we deal with people in the church? Chapter six, how do we deal with people that are outside of the church that don't know Jesus? We're called to be an example for both. And God is looking at you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. God is looking at you to be a reflection of him. We want people to look into your eyes, hear you speak, see your actions and say, man, I want what they got. Because I'm not really seeing them. I'm seeing Jesus in them, and I want more of Jesus. That's our goal. We're here to serve the King of Kings, to be about the Father's business, to preach the gospel to this whole North Shore and see revival and a great awakening hit this, this North Shore. That's what I want to see. I hope that's what you want. I want to see a big move of the Spirit before God takes us out of here. How awesome would it be if the rapture happened and nobody was left on quiet? What a statement. Wow. So now as we get into this portion of Scripture, let's look at uh, verse 17. We're going to do 17 to the end of the chapter. Let's read it. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive accusations against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that they, the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sin. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only a little water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake, for your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those are some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture. Lord, open our eyes. Let us see a little more clearly. Lord, we want to treat each other the way you want us to. And you're our, you're our great example. You came to this world not to be served, but to serve. And we need to get that in our hearts. And so, Lord, help us to love. Help us to reach out and help us to be pleasing in your sight. Bless this time as we dig into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, how we treat the leaders in the church. So, we were looking into that there's pastors, there's elders, there's deacons. And pretty much deacons is just servants. So, if you're serving in the church, you're a deacon or a deaconess. The diakonos. And so, that just simply means servant. So, elders... Pastors, 
uh, ministers, we call them. It, ministry is simply we serve you. It's not you serving us. It's, it's always sad when you see um, sort of uh, priests and pastors being lifted up on a pedestal and everybody's just rushing to serve them and do this and do that. That's sad because our job is to serve you. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He's our example. So if we're all interested in just serving others and not being served, think of what God's going to do in our life. It's going to be amazing. And I'll tell you what, Jesus even said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you got to be what? Servant of all. Servant of all. That's how you do it. That's the prerequisite. That's how you get to be used by God in such a mighty way that it becomes contagious to everybody around here. So he says to us, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. The word there, labor in the Greek, is, is to the point of exhaustion. That a pastor who is to be laboring in the word and in teaching to the point of exhaustion, that he, he, takes, the, he takes the opportunity to teach anywhere he can, when he can. He's, he's never off duty. You know, sometimes if people think, you know, this is like a, a nine-to-five job, it's not a nine-to-five job. Sometimes it's a 40-week job an hour, I, I, I mean a week, but sometimes it's 50, 60 hours. It's like sometimes there's a call in the middle of the night, somebody's in an ICU, you've got to run down there, you're there all night. It's like you're a doctor on call. And, and that's how it is for all the people on staff here. It's like, yeah, we've got regular time sets, but uh, we're, not, we're not just you know, curbed to that time only. We, we, we have to be available. And so there's a lot of stuff that goes on. And there's weeks that we have where we do so much that we labor to the point of exhaustion. And so he says to those pastors, to those leaders, he says they are worthy of double honor. Now he's talking financial there. This kind of stuff's always uncomfortable for me. Because I'm in it for the kingdom. I'm in it for the, the king. But he says here he's got sound instructions, and he says, he says that an elder who labors in the word, in the doctrine, and rules well to be counted worthy of double honor. So what does that mean? Well, I once heard a pastor say, that that means that you find the person in the church that gets paid the most, double that and give it to the pastor. And I thought that was pretty foolish and self-serving. But then, you know what, I started thinking about that. And as I studied the original language and the Greek, I realized, yeah, that's foolish. I think it's really wrong uh, for churches who feel that their pastors have to live in poverty to keep them humble. I think that's a real shame. I also think it's a shame for these churches that are paying pastors millions of dollars a year. I don't get that. I don't understand that. I don't know why they need that. Um, but I also don't think that a pastor should be in poverty. He should be taken care of. It's, it's uh, you know, a lot of times pastors are working other jobs in order to be a full-time pastor. And what that does is it takes away from their time of being with the Lord in prayer and in the Word of God. And if your pastor's not growing, you're not growing. 
And it's important for that pastor to have that time. You remember last week we talked about Acts 6 when they were disputing over the widows, the, the Greek widows and the Hebrew widows that had become Christians. And um, they were trying to get the apostles to do something about it. They said, appoint men to be the deacons to take care of you and don't take us away from the word of God and from prayer. Because they understood that that's where they were going to be the best used for the people as, as if they were always in the Word of God, when they're always in the Word and in prayer, that they're going to be a better benefit to the people of God if they're in the Word of God. And so we want to grow. Uh, God wants you to grow. Your pastor needs to grow. He needs that support. He needs your prayers. I love it when people say we're praying for you. I'm like, praise the Lord. I need it. Pray for your pastors. Pray for the leaders in your church. Pray that God will get a hold of them and do mighty things through them. Um, 1 Corinthians tells us this. Well, actually, let me read verse 18 because he goes back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy and he says, For the Scriptures say you shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain and that a laborer is worthy of his wages. I like that. So he takes a a take from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25.4, and then he also refers to Luke 10, where Jesus says a laborer is worth his wages, is worthy of wages. And so he brings these examples. Paul would also say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. He says, whoever goes to war at his own expense. Right? I mean, you get drafted to go fight in a war, you don't, you don't show up, report for duty, and they say, okay, you got to pay your way through this war. They don't do that. No, they give you everything you need. They take care of you. They give you clothes. They give you money. They give you food. They give you ammo. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit? You don't grow a garden and not be able to enjoy the fruit of your garden. Or who tends the flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, he says it. No, no doubt this is written that he who plows should plow in hope and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, uh, listen, you know, if we're laboring night and day in prayer and in the word, in counseling and comforting you, and we're growing you in spiritual things, is it wrong for us to have you take care of us? And God would say, no, it's biblical for the church to take care of the pastors and the leaders in the church. Now, when we started this church um, over 20 years ago, um, I didn't get paid. I mean, we didn't have any money. We, we met first in a condo, and then we ended up getting the, the, the cafeteria over there at Kilauea Elementary, Elementary School. And we were there, and we were there for uh, quite some time. And, you know, the, the church couldn't afford anything. I worked full-time making surfboards, and then we have a part-time martial arts school that we were doing, and my wife was working. We did what we could for the cause. We, we just knew it was the right thing to do. And when the church was finally able to pay me something, 
they gave me $500 a week. But I had seven people in my family, five kids, my wife and me. We ate more than that. So we had to keep working. And, and it was okay. And, and then as the church started to grow, we needed more people on staff. And we had like people on part-time staff. But the problem with having people on part-time staff is that they're committed to somebody else part-time. So I didn't have access to them whenever I needed them like we really need. And so my wife and I decided we would just keep working. She does two jobs. I do two jobs outside in order to be able to employ more people to better serve you and to serve this community. And so you do what you can when you can. And, but the church is to be uh, uh, an entity that is constantly praying for the leaders of the church and willing to partake in helping uh, them continue on in their ministry. Now he's going to start addressing what do you do when accusations come against a leader in the church? And so look at verse 19. He says, Do not receive any accusations against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Now this is super important. Why? Because people love to gossip. Oh man, we love a good juicy story, don't we? But as Christians, we know gossip is a sin. Ooh, but we got around it. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? We need to pray for them. And you're like, no, I didn't hear. Let's pray. What? We got to stop that. He says, don't receive any accusations towards a leader in the church without two or three eyewitnesses. That would just shut everything down right away. I've seen so many churches destroyed because someone was spreading lies and next thing you know everybody's believing it and nobody's seeking out truth he says if somebody comes to you and they say did you hear about pastor so-and-so you just stop them right there you say what do i need to know what you're about to tell me oh yeah it's good can i quote you that usually stops it right there okay i'm gonna i'm gonna go talk to them and i'm gonna say you told me oh don't do i don't tell them i told you but I heard it from a reliable source. Okay, well, I'm going to tell about you and your reliable source. No, I don't want to get involved. That stops it right there. You want eyewitnesses, not Instagram, not Facebook, not gossip. This is how these things start, and they get out of control, and people suffer, and I've watched good people be destroyed because of lies that are being spread about them. So if somebody comes to you right away, you stop them. You say, I'm not going to entertain anything about another pastor, about another leader. If you have two or three witnesses that were there, come talk to me. And then we'll deal with this according to the Word of God. That's so important. It has to be verified by two or three witnesses. And that was in Deuteronomy chapter 19. So it was in the Law of Moses. Because i got to say this, that one of the most difficult, challenging things a pastor faces is that he is completely vulnerable to any accusations that are made concerning him. Anyone can make up anything about him and declare it to be true. Now, that's not the thing that breaks a pastor's heart because he expects things like that. You must be thick-skinned as a pastor, enough so to expect that people are going to talk about you. That's just part of the territory. But you got to make sure what they're saying is not true. 
the thing that breaks a pastor's heart the most is when the accusations are readily believed by so many and they never come to ask to see if it was even true what was being said about them. A pastor is in a place of weakness concerning these types of things because if somebody gets mad at the pastor, they start saying bad things about him. And people love to believe a lie. I remember a while back was uh, a couple left the church and they served in the church. They, they listened to some lies. They believed it about somebody in our church, one of our leaders. And they left the church, but they left. They were supposed to be there doing ministry on Sunday, and they just didn't even bother to call in or anything. They just didn't show up and left us high and dry. And so the leaders of those ministry called them, and they said, they said hey, what's going on? And they told them, hey, we're leaving the church. And they said, why? And they didn't, say, they didn't say why. So those leaders of the ministry called me and told me, so I tried to reach out to them. I called them. They didn't call me back. I texted them. They didn't text me back. I figured I'd just keep calling, you know, day after day. And finally, uh, he answered the phone. And I said, hey, what's going on? He goes, oh, you're probably calling because we left the church. And I said, yeah, what's going on? And he goes, well, you know, I want you to know, we don't know about anything going on. We just heard people were leaving. And my heart broke. I go, are you, are you kidding me? And I realized people love to believe a lie rather than the truth. And I felt God speak to me right there and say, you know what? I know you're not going to like this, but blessed subtractions. Because people that think like that are going to be troubled down the road unless they get their heart right. And so, but this is all part of the territory that the crowd is fickle you you remember uh, when jesus rode in on the triumphal entry the palm sunday there were hosanna hosanna and three days later crucify him crucify him why because the religious leaders told lies and spread accusations falsely all around about jesus and unfortunately people believed it they did the same thing with the apostle paul they Widely false accused the Apostle Paul, the religious leaders, and it was widely believed, though it was completely false. And so we see it happened to Jesus, it happened to Paul, and these things are going to happen to you and me. People are going to say things about you that aren't true. I love what J. Vernon McGee said. He said, hey, people are always going to talk about you. You just make sure when you lay your head down at night on the pillow, none of it's true. God's the judge. God will get your back. The truth will be revealed. And, you know, shame on them for saying things that were lies about you. I am convinced and believe that this one commandment is the most disobeyed commandment in the Bible to where people don't do what God says pertaining to leaders in the church not to receive any accusations against them unless there are two to three eyewitnesses. And it would solve all the junk that happens that we see in churches today and all the pain that they go through. Matthew 18 is very clear. Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, take it to Instagram. Blow him up on Facebook. 
No, that's not what it says. It says what? Go to Him and Him alone. Man, we've got to get that into our hearts. Because I'll tell you what, sometimes when you're having problems with somebody, it's just a misunderstanding. You thought they meant something against you. They thought something. It's like and it's all misunderstanding. It could be easily solved. But when you take it and you blow them up on Instagram or Facebook or social media, then it's like you're at a point of no return. You can't take back all the junk you said. And then when you go and destroy them to your friends and you get a posse against them, then when you find out you were wrong, you're reluctant to go back to your friends and go, oh, you know that stuff I told you I was wrong. And you just destroyed somebody. Matthew 18 says, if your brother has sinned against you, you go to him alone. If he hears you, you receive back a brother. If he won't listen, if he's done something wrong and he says, I don't care what you think, I'm doing that anyway, then you go get two or three godly people who don't have any interest in the situation, people that just want to see it resolved biblically and godly, and you bring them along and you address the situation. If they won't receive you then, then you take it to the leaders of the church. And the leaders of the church try to plea with that individual, hey, let's do the right thing. And if they won't do the right thing and they continue in the sin, then the church has to put that person out because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, if that person down the road hits rock bottom because Paul would talk about people like that, he, he talked about turning them over to Satan. Believers, what do you mean turn them over? Listen, if they won't listen to the Word of God and they won't obey and they won't do the right thing, let the enemy have his way with them to such a point where they hit rock bottom to where they look up. And some of us are so hard-headed, I know I was, I had to hit rock bottom in order to look up and go, okay, Lord, I, I give up, you win. And he said, no, now you win. Now let's get back on track. And so when that person that got sent out of the church because they didn't want to deal with their sin and they want to continue in it, you keep praying for that person. Keep praying for them. And then when they hit rock bottom, they come back and they've repented. You receive them back with open arms. Love. Love. Why? Because Jesus received you back with open arms. Right? They didn't need the blood of Jesus more than you. You're just as much of a sinner. They didn't need forgiveness more than you. And God has forgiven us from so much, how can we not forgive others? You're like, even that person that hates me and goes out of their way to hurt me? Yeah, pray for them. Don't be a doormat. Don't let them take advantage of you, but keep praying for them. Because prayer changes things. Amen? Amen. We are to do what's right. Now, when a leader is in sin, God is not soft on him. Look at verse 20. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. So what, is, what does that mean? It means once you've established the facts and you find out that it's true, then you counsel them you have that leader step down for a while. There's counseling. There's, there's, a, there's a process that you go through in order to see them get close to God again, to be generally repentive and, and to be restored back to where they were at. That's the goal. God is always into reconciliation and restoration. And so you, you may fall into sin and you say, well, I'm not even serving in the church, but you're serving the God of, of who we, we worship 
you're still in the army of the Lord. You're serving. You may not be serving in the church, but you're a servant outside of the church, and you fall into a sin that overtakes your life and destroys you. God says, let's get back on our feet. He's, you know, if you come to him and confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God forgives you. He stands you up. He says, let's move forward now. Let's go back to it. And God is always in the business of restoration, reconciliation, healing. Because you're going to make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. Why? We're not perfect. We're not what we used to be, but we're not what we should be. But we're, we're being changed from glory to glory. We will be what we should be the moment we stand in His presence. Amen? Because we'll have a new body, and that new body won't be able to sin. We won't be able to blow it. So don't worry about getting to heaven and thinking, wow, what's going to happen? I'm going to get up there, I'm going to blow it, they're going to kick me out. No, they're not. You're in. And you're not only in, you've got a new body that's incapable of sinning. How cool is that? I love, and a body that never feels any sickness or pain. How cool will that be? All right, I guess you're not in enough pain. I'll tell you what, I wake up some mornings, I feel like a train just ran over me, and I'm like, what, what did I do? <laughs> he tells us in verse 21, he says, I charge you before God and the, and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. So now he's saying, listen, when we treat one another, how we treat one another, check this out, this is important. How we treat each other, how we treat leaders in the church, how we treat the widows, how we treat people out in the community. He's saying not only is Jesus watching, the Father's watching, and the angels are watching. Book of Hebrews says we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Do you realize there's angels here right now? You may not know this, but they're in here right now. And it says the angels are looking into the things of man because God is doing things through man that the angels never could fully understand. And he's revealing his purpose through mankind. And the angels are learning about God's purpose for us through watching us. Hello. Are you a good example? They're watching. They're here right now. And you know what? And, and one of the reasons they're here is to protect us. Because wherever the Word of God is going out, the enemy wants to stop the Word of God. Amen? So you always say, well, where's the front lines for the enemy? It's the churches. It's the mission field. It's not, it's not the, the, uh, the bars. It's not the drug houses. It's not the place of prostitution. They already got that. It's the church. It's the mission field. It's the front lines where the gospel is going out. You got saved, and they, the enemy doesn't want you to pull your friends along with you. And so there's like this war that goes on. And so when you come in on a Sunday, right, and you come to receive the Word of God, and all of a sudden something's about to be said, only God knows, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be something that you really need. Then all of a sudden your phone goes, doo text. Or all of a sudden there's a distraction. And, and, and this is so funny when distractions happen, like let's say like a little kid bolts down the aisle. And I'm up here, and I'm, I'm ready to hit just this maximum point that's just going to send you to heaven. And, and all of a sudden, this little kid just comes running down, and I watch everybody just go. And I'm like, they didn't get that, did they? 
So sometimes I repeat myself because I notice distractions that are taking place. There's a war going on in here. As the Word of God goes out, the enemy is fighting against the angels because the enemy doesn't want you to get the Word that's going out today, that you will be strengthened and encouraged and emboldened to serve the King of Kings. So we come to focus. That's why I always sit in the front. When I go to a conference and everything, I'm right in the front because I don't want to be distracted. And I, I stare, like Wednesday night, I stare at Pastor David. I stare at Pastor David. I, I stare at Josh Beal. I'm just like right there looking at him. And they, they, they like, they're like panning the room and they look at me. Oh, man. <laughs> so he says when you're dealing with people, don't, don't do it with prejudice or, or with partiality. So what, what is he saying there? He said, listen, um, you know, there may be someone you don't really like in the church too well. You've had some problems with them. And then you see that they made a mistake. And so instead of coming in love, you come harsh. Does anybody understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? God says, don't do that. And then there might be somebody else. It's like your best friend in the church. They screw up and you're kind of like, all right, well, let's just kind of let it go. I know we're brothers, you know. And, and, and he says, no, no, don't play favoritism. Don't show prejudice. Don't show partiality. You go to somebody, whether you get along with them or you don't get along with them, if they've made a mistake, you go in love, you go according to the Word of God, not showing any prejudice, not showing any partiality, and deal with the situation in a godly way. Amen? Okay, the next verse. He says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. So one of the other things he says about appointing leaders in the church is make sure you don't do it too quick. Make sure that you know them well. Like a lot of times people will come here and I've had people, their very first time, I've never even met them, and they'll come up and they'll say, you know, this is our first time here, we're going to make this church our home, we like what's going on here, and if I'm here, I need to be up there on stage. And I'm like, no, you need to sit down. I go, we got a rule with the worship team. It's six months. Six months? I mean, I'm like, yeah, because in six months, you might not even like me. And you might not even like us. And, and we want to find out about you. We want to see how you act. We want to see what kind. Are you full of love? Are you willing to help? You know, we, we, we don't do it hastily because if you do and you find out that the person's one way in church, but they're a different way outside of church, then you got some serious problems. And now it's under the banner of Calvary Chapel North Shore, right? So you got to be careful. You don't appoint people in haste. We look for fruit here. Everybody that's on staff here were people that came here and they saw what God was doing and they just started serving. They didn't want nothing. They just wanted to be part of it. And those are the people that we put on staff. They were in it for the right reasons. And then we saw their love for the body of Christ, the love for ministry, their love for Jesus, and we put them on staff. And so now we come to um, verse 23, very controversial verse. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. So um, why would Paul say that to Timothy? Because no doubt he had stomach problems and he probably had like anxiety and stomach problems from dealing with crazy leaders and people in ministry. And, uh, and he was suffering these infirmities. 
And Paul was saying, hey, listen, um, drink a little wine. Okay? So no doubt Timothy had the liberty to drink wine. You don't have a liberty to get drunk. And if you're an alcoholic, you don't have the liberty to drink at all. So, but Timothy obviously said, listen, I'm going to abstain from that because I don't want to cause anybody to stumble. And now Paul is saying, listen, Timothy, I understand your heart. You don't want to stumble anybody, but this is what you need to do. Drink a little wine. Don't drink water anymore. Mix it with a little wine for your stomach's sake. Because in that region and in a lot of places, right, the water wasn't safe. And so they would add wine to the water to kill the parasites because the alcohol would kill the parasites, right? I remember when we were kids, uh, we grew up in, in California, and we used to, as teenagers, drive across the border to go surf in Mexico. And what was the one thing that everybody always said when you went to Mexico? Don't drink the water, right? Because you get Montezuma's revenge, right? But it's like I found out that in every place where you grow up, everybody can handle the water where they grow up. They just can't handle the water anywhere else. So when the Mexicans would come up from the border and come to America, they would get Uncle Sam's revenge. So wherever you're at, you, you experience that. When we went to the Philippines and did mission work, they said, don't drink the water. Don't even brush your teeth with the faucet water in the best hotels. And then on top of that, they said, and even when you shower, even the best hotels, they say, take some water, put it in your mouth, hold it in your mouth, go shower, keep it in your mouth the whole time, wash your hair, and when you're all done and you turn off the shower and you dry off, spit out the water there because it, it was so dangerous that, you know, like sometimes when you're washing your hair and you're getting the soap out, the water trickles down in your mouth, you don't even realize it, and next thing you know, you're down. And so he's saying it for um, medical purposes to him now um here's the question that some of us would come up with is why didn't paul just heal him i mean didn't paul do a lot of miracles wasn't he in ephesus teaching and people would come in and steal his handkerchiefs and bring him to sick people and those that were you know possessed with a demon and they would get healed why didn't he just uh Pray over a handkerchief and send it to Timothy. Timothy, wipe yourself down with this. You'll be good. Why didn't he heal, he heal Epaphroditus when Epaphroditus was near to death? Why didn't he heal himself? Paul had an infirmity. He petitioned the Lord three times, and at the third time, the Lord said what? My grace is sufficient for you. So sometimes we don't understand why God doesn't heal. Now we're called to lay hands on each other, anoint each other with oil and pray. And we're supposed to pray in faith, right? And we've seen God heal miraculously right on the spot. But sometimes he doesn't do it that fast. Sometimes it takes time. But I can tell you this, check this out. God has healed me from everything I was ever sick from. Whether it was somebody laying hands on me right away or whether it took some time and I had to write it out for two months. But God healed me. I believe that. Now what I don't believe in is this, uh, this, this faith prosperity, this healing prosperity teaching that's going around where people will say, uh, if you're not healed, it's because there's sin in your life. And if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. That's a bunch of hogwash. Don't you buy into that for a moment. We lay hands on one another. We pray for one another. We've seen God heal immediately. We've seen Him take some time. And then we've seen people that aren't healed. But it's God's sovereignty. He does what He wants. 
It's not up to us. Listen, you might be going through something right now and you're like, why hasn't God healed me? And you know what? It might be because he wants to get you to the doctor's office where you can witness about Jesus Christ to the doctor and the nurses and the other patients who are going through the same thing as you are. Did you know that? Do you realize that? Can you believe that in your heart? That sometimes God allows uncomfortable things in your life to get you where you won't go on your own to be a vessel to witness of his glory. And praise the Lord. What's the worst thing that can happen to us? We die and go to heaven? Really? So we need to look at these things sometimes and just trust God. God always answers prayer. He says yes, no, or not now. What's he saying to you? Is he saying yes today? Is he saying no today? Is he saying it's coming but not now? Then just wait upon the Lord. We need to just trust him and have faith. Now, there's some Christians who say, well, we, we don't go to doctors. We're trusting in the Lord. God provided doctors. God gave doctors wisdom. Hello, Paul had his own personal doctor. Luke was a physician. Why did God put Luke with Paul? Because everywhere Paul went, he got the snot beat out of him. He needed a doctor. And God puts doctors and gives them wisdom to take care of us. It's important for us to understand that we need to realize that sometimes God's saying, go to the doctor. Because I want you to be a witness there. Remember, God's ways aren't our ways. There was a story of this, this valley that had a bunch of homes in it, and there was this storm coming, and it was going to cause the dam to overflow in such a way it was going to flood this valley. And so the police, the sheriff, came out to the valley and went to all the homes and told everybody, hey, evacuate. Uh, there's going to be a flooding. You need to get out of here just to be safe. Get out of here. And there was one particular guy who said, I'm not going anywhere. God's going to take care of me. I'm a Christian. I'm trusting in the Lord. And so the flood came, and it came in such volume that next thing you know, the people that didn't evacuate were on their rooftops because there was so much water. And then the, the sheriffs came out in little boats to rescue people off their rooftops. They come to this guy, and, and he says, hey, no, I'm not getting in the boat. God's going to take care of me. I'm trusting in God. And they say, get in the boat. He goes, nope, trusting in God. And so they, they take off without him. Next thing you know, the water's so high, he's up at the highest apex of his roof, and he's just like water's sweeping him. A helicopter comes in and says, grab the rope. He goes, no, I'm trusting in God. I'm going to be all right. And the water kept rising, and all of a sudden he got swept off the roof and he drowned. So he's standing before the Lord and he said, Lord, I trusted that you were going to take care of me and deliver me from that. And, and Jesus said, he said, well, I, I sent you the sheriff, and then I sent a boat for you, and then I sent a helicopter for you. Sometimes God's giving you the answer in a way that seems so human, it doesn't seem like it's from God. We don't understand His ways and the way that He works. But we know that He loves us so much that He can't take His eyes off of us, and we need to put our trust in Him. God works in ways that we don't understand. Now, I want you to notice that He says here to Timothy, take a little wine. He's got to make that clear. And he's got to make that clear to some people. He's not saying, Timothy, you know, when the leaders get out of control and the pressure is really on, just go get hammered, bro. He's not saying that. 
He says, take a little wine for your infirmity. And so uh, he makes that point clear. And then let's wrap this up. Verse 24 and 25. He says, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some follow later on. Likewise, good works of some are clearly evident, and those otherwise cannot be hidden. And so in this portion of Scripture, he says, listen, there's going to be some people that you're going to come encounter with that their sins are going to be so right out there in your face that it can't be hidden. But then there's going to be people who look like they're Christians, they talk like they're Christians, they act like Christians, but their sins are hidden, and he says those will be revealed. And he says also, too, with the last part, he says there are those in the church whose good works are evident for everyone to see. I mean, they're serving, they're full of joy, they're full of love, they're always praying for people, they're jumping into whatever needs to be done. You look at them and they man, they're so godly. I want to be like that. But then he says, he gives us a strong warning too, that there are those that you don't see that are working behind the scenes. And he's saying, listen, they have good works, but nobody sees them. Don't overlook them. So this is good, sound teaching for us. If the worship team would come forward, these are great things for all of us uh, to just apply to our lives on how to treat one another, how to treat the congregation, how the congregation treats the leaders, and how we treat those out there in the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you um, just for the opportunity to go over these things, to remind us, Lord God. I pray that you would just fill this group fresh with your Holy Spirit right now. Pour out your Spirit on them because they're going to be going out into this world and they're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to reach out in love and to be an example that's pleasing to your sight. And if there's someone here right now you don't know Jesus, I don't want you to leave this place without the Lord. I don't want you to leave this place without being part of the Holy Family. If that's you today, you need to understand you're not saved by your works. Your works are a reflection of your love for Jesus Christ. You are saved by faith and faith alone. If you want Jesus right now, pray this in your heart. Lord, I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you're the only one that can forgive sin. Lord, forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me. Lord, I believe you died on the cross and rose again on the third day. I'm asking you, Lord Jesus Christ, be my Savior. Save me now. If you just prayed that in your heart, you're a child of God. Now go live in the power of the Holy Spirit and be used by God. God wants to use you to blow the minds of the people all around you. Amen? Amen. Amen.